I don't know about you, but it is hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that next week is Christmas. It just doesn't feel very Christmassy this year. I don't know why. I don't know if it's the fact that it's 60 and 70 degrees. I don't know if it's the fact that it's just been wide open for us business-wise. I just doesn't feel Christmassy this year. And it's funny, the older I get, is that a word, Christmassy? Okay. The older I get, the less Christmassy it feels every year. And the older I get, the more scrooged I become and the less joyous I become. I turn into that kind of humbug person and it's weird because, man, I love Christmas. Got on the golf cart the other day and we're driving through the neighborhood and I expected to see all the neighbors lit up with Christmas trees and everybody kept saying, go to the back of the neighborhood. You know, the back of the neighborhood is where the rich folk live. We're in the ghetto of the neighborhood, the front part of the neighborhood, so I expected the, the rich part to be all decked out for Christmas, and it wasn't decked out for Christmas. And it was just disappointing, man. I just remember when you were a kid, you'd get in the car and you'd drive through neighborhoods and you'd see Christmas, and it's, it's cool. I feel like our city's trying things. The mill's all decorated. They've got the ice skating rink, but it's just weird to ice skate when it's 70 degrees outside. And so it's just a weird kind of year, and it seems like what used to be the happiest time of the year has become the time of the year where we're the most scrooged, if you will. And so what we've been talking about this month is how to remove the humbug from our lives and enjoy the holiday season. Grady did a great job in week one talking about how our words can affect us during the holiday season. Last week I talked about the subject of depression and how we can overcome depression. And this week I want to talk to you about something that we're all guilty of, even if we don't realize we're guilty of. And I think with the advent of social media, it's actually made this one of the things that affects us the most. And I want to talk to you today on the subject of the comparison trap. The comparison trap. My name is Gary Lamb. I am 45 years old. Seems weird to say that. 45? That's old to me. That's old. 45. I'm 45 years old, and I wish I could tell you that I have outgrown the comparison trap. But from time to time, I still catch myself looking to the right of me, looking to the left of me, comparing what I've done to what other people have done, what I've accomplished to what other people have accomplished, where I'm headed compared to where other people are heading. And I don't know that it matters how old we get, we still fall into that trap. And the reality is, I'm not alone in this, especially in the day of Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and Twitter. It's constantly putting the highlight reels of everyone's life in front of us, and we're so guilty of comparing our lives to the lives of others. And what's funny is we're so guilty of comparing our lives to what others want to post on their social media. Because we only post the best, right? We retake the picture seven times to make sure it looks perfect. We rearrange our food perfectly before we take a picture of it. We never take a picture of our spouse and us fighting 
Even if we've been fighting, we put a fake smile to stand in front of the Christmas tree to take the picture. We never post a picture of the kids being demons, only of them being cute. We never post a picture of the car broke down on the side of the road, only the car once it's been cleaned and it's new. And so the reality is we're living in reality of our life, yet we're comparing the highlight reels of other people's life to our life, and it's stealing our joy, the comparison trap. And like I said, I I love social media, but I think social media has contributed. I saw some staggering stats on social media this week. It said there's 176 billion active users of social media. 72% of all adults online visit social media at a minimum of once a week. 963 million active daily users. The average person spends 20 minutes a day on social media. I spend more time than that in the bathroom on social media. Just being honest with you. The average woman has 250 connections on social media. 47%, this is a lie, this is a low stat, it should have been 97%. 47% of all drivers admit to checking social media while they drive. Sit on Highway 20 for about two seconds. And you'll realize that 100% of drivers are on social media. The comparison trap. And nothing will steal your joy quicker than comparing your life, your journey, your adventure to somebody else's. (laughs) See if I can explain this. As I compare my tendency to compare myself to others, comparing themselves to others, I suddenly feel better about myself. I feel better comparing myself to others who are comparing themselves to others because I make sure I'm only comparing myself to others who are doing less than me. And I feel better about myself. Well, I'm not as bad off as blank. I don't know if I remember a time ever in my life where I've seen more people discontent with their lives. We see the best, the best, and what everyone has to offer. And we convince ourselves we would be happier or our lives would be better if we had blank like they have. The comparison trap. For me, I can remember the comparison trap starting in middle school. Everybody remember the first time you compared middle school? I wanted a pair of Air Jordans. I'm talking about the black, red, and white ones. I'm talking about the, the, the Jordan 1s. They weren't Jordan 1s, they were just Jordans. Man, I'd never seen anything like those Jordans. High top and the color scheme. And I knew if I had them, even though I was a white country boy, I'd play just like Michael Jordan. And I had to have those Jordans. I I remember telling my mom how awful my life was because I didn't have the Jordans. 
the comparison trap. Kids nowadays, man, it is pitiful. Matter of fact, kids nowadays, it's almost disgusting. We had it rough when we were kids. But at least we could go home and at least for the rest of the day, unless we were on the landline, unplug from the craziness. They're surrounded by it 24-7. Just meanness and bullies. Insecure little kids making fun of other insecure kids thinking that how much they have or what they dress like or how their hair is fixed or what kind of shoes they have on in some way signifies who they are. And the problem is they're learning it from the parents. The comparison trap. Nothing will steal your joy quicker than the comparison trap. We live kind of in that land of what I like to call Ur. The land of Ur. We think if we just had more er in our life, if we were just richer, funnier, smarter, taller, prettier, happier, hipper, talenteder, we'd be happy. If I was just better at this, if I was if I was just a little richer than this, you've heard me share this before. They asked a person, they asked a group of people who made $100,000 a year how much money they would need to make to be comfortable. Those that made $100,000 a year said $200,000 a year. More. They asked those who made $250,000 a year, how much money do you need to make a year to feel comfortable? You all right back there? Nobody's dead? Those that make $250,000 a year said if they made $500,000 a year. It was always double. Those who made $500,000 said they just made a million. Those who made a million said if they just made $2 million, they would be comfortable. We just need more. We live in the land of earth comparing what we are. And then we get married and we start playing that game with our spouse. We just be happy-er if they were Better, skinnier, more caringer, nicer. And then we lie to ourselves and convince ourselves the only reason we're saying that about them is we want to see the best in them. Hmm. We're really just comparing our spouse to our buddy's spouse on social media. We don't know anything about our spouse, but we know everything about the spouse on social media. And we play the comparison trap. My spouse was just more like blank. I'd be happy. And then we do it with our kids. We have kids, and then we see everyone posting about their kids on social media. And, man, if my kid was just smarter or faster, we'd feel better about ourselves. We live in the land of Ur. Sadly, we find our validation from how other people perceive us. 
And the sad thing is 90% of them don't even think about us. But we want to give the illusion. Some of the day said, man, I've never seen anybody that gets more interaction on social media than you. But the reality is I'm at the limit on Facebook of 5,000 friends. So if I get 100 likes on a post out of 5,000 friends, it's really not that many. It's a percentage game. So I'm really no different than someone who gets 10 likes but has 500 friends. But we play the comparison game. We live in the land of Ur. Are some of you are really sick like me? I've moved past the land of Ur, and I live in the land of Est. The land of Est. I, I, I want to be the richest. I want to be the bestest. I want to be the happiest. I want to be the skinniest. <laughs> Definitely not happening. And then again, I, I lie to myself and say, I just want those things because I'm trying to reach my potential. When really it's just a sickness where I'm trying to convince myself of my worth based on things God never asked us to compare ourselves to. The Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're unique in how you're made. God doesn't make mistakes. You've heard me say this literally nine million times. You might have been a surprise in the backseat of mommy and daddy's car. Whoops. But you didn't surprise God. He told Jeremiah, I set you apart in your mother's womb. Before you were ever took your first breath on this side, God knew who you were. And he shaped you and he formed you and he created you. And what an insult to the creator for us not to learn contentment and peace with who God created us to be by comparing ourselves especially to the fakeness of other people. The comparison trap will drain you. The comparison trap will sap you. Trying to be like others isn't the answer. We have to get to the stage in life where we simply learn to love ourselves and see ourselves as God sees us. There literally is no win in comparison. But it motivates me, it drives you. No, it doesn't. It consumes you. And it beats you up. And it jabs at you, and it jabs at you, and it jabs at you. And then eventually it comes along and it delivers that left hook when you least expect it, and the comparison trap knocks you out, and it destroys your marriages. It destroys your relationship with your kids. You can't be content with what God is doing in your life because you're comparing it to what God is doing in other people's lives. It's a dead end. There's no finish line. There's no victory. So the question becomes, how do I try to better myself? Because we want to better ourselves. We do want to live to the God-given potential that he's given us in life. I want to max out every moment of my life 
And I want all that God has planned for me. I'm a driven individual. So how do we do that without the comparison trap sneaking in and consuming us? It's a struggle. It's not easy. It's been a struggle for me for years. I used to pastor one of the fastest growing churches in America and never could enjoy the fact that I pastored that church because I would look at the list that came out every year. First of all, how pathetic is that that there's a list that comes out in a magazine of the fastest growing and biggest churches in America? You think God's impressed with that? You think God's more impressed with a church of 10,000 than he is the church of 20? What a joke. But I remember everybody would be excited and the paper would write about us and I'd be angry because there was 15 other churches in front of us. I told you, I don't live in the land of Ur, I live in the land of Est. I wanted to be the biggest, the fastest, and it would consume me. I was always comparing to what others were doing and literally made myself miserable to the fact of burnout, to the point of burnout. That's how there's no win in comparison. I've struggled with this over the years. I still struggle with it. So I'm just being honest with you. I'm not preaching at you today. I'm preaching with you. This is not going to be the funnest, laughingest, most energetic sermon, but I'm going to give you some truths today that will change your life and set you free in this area. And if none of you get anything out of it, it's a good reminder for me today. Because I'm still guilty of it. I'm sitting back over the last couple of days, and I'm setting goals for 2022, and all of a sudden I started comparing what I was trying to do to those there, and I said, no, 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 no. Let's eliminate what everyone else is doing. Let's get alone with God and figure out what God wants to do in our lives. If you have your Bibles today, we're going to hang out in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a cool book. If you've never read the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of wisdom in this book. A lot of the verses that you would see in the book of Ecclesiastes, you've seen on signs or bumper stickers. It's written by Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. So it's just packed full of wisdom. By human standards, human standards, Solomon was better than anyone here. So we can learn from him. He was the wisest I don't really understand how he was the wisest because he had 700 wives and that doesn't seem very wise to me. But I would imagine if you got 700 women to choose from and you're the king, he probably had the hottest. He was the wealthiest. He was at the top of the food chain. So we can learn from him. But Solomon had learned some things about the comparison trap along the way. Look what he says in Ecclesiastes 4. He said, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. The wisest, richest, I guess the pimpest, he had 700 wives, man who ever lived, The man who should be content with where he was in life says, I saw that all toil, all achievement sprang from one person's envy of another. He's like, I've been watching people, and it seems to me what drives people the most is competition. 
They're looking over their right shoulder and they're looking over their left shoulder and they're all worried about where people are working or where people are making or where they're shopping and what they're doing and what they're doing to achieve things instead of what God's called them to do and it's bringing toil in their life. They're envious of other people. He said people are driven by what other people see other people doing. (laughs) 3,000 years ago when Solomon's talking about the comparison trap. He said, I saw that all toil and all achievement sprang from one person's envy of another. Envy of another. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. He said, everyone is out there and they're trying to achieve and they're trying to obtain based on the perception of others. And he says, like chasing the wind, you can't do it. You're doing something that is fruitless. You're chasing something that can't be caught. You're trying to obtain based on what other people have, yet God's uniquely called you to have what you have. He's saying it's a worthless endeavor. It's a meaningless endeavor. You can't catch the wind. There's no finish line in it. So you're you're running a race you can't win. Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 5, he went on to say, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. I love that he follows up with this. He says, I'm not saying don't be ambitious. He says, I'm not saying don't try to better yourself. He said, I'm just saying make sure you do it for the right reasons and not because you're comparing your endeavors to the endeavors of others. Verse 6, he says, Better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. The imagery, the Hebrew imagery is amazing here. He said, it's better to have one hand out that God can fill up to overflowing than two hands held closed that God can't bless. (laughs) He says, it's better to have one hand open with tranquility and contentment then both hands clenched around comparing and trying to obtain and the stress and the toil that brings. He says you'll never have peace trying to hold on to everything. Be content. Once you've tightened your hands around everything you can get, there'll be something you can't get because you can only hold so much. And you'll have no self, you have no peace because your self-worth is dependent on what you can hold. Solomon looked around and he said, people are holding on to everything and have no peace. If they could just learn to hold their hand out and let God fill it, there'd be peace and tranquility. But we play the comparison trap. They live in a million-dollar home, so I can't be happy in my half-million-dollar home. They have a brand-new 2021 truck, and I only have a 2019 truck. They're making $250,000 a year, and I'm only making $100,000 a year. They're making $100,000 a year, and I'm only making $50,000 a year. Did you know you can make $50,000 a year and have more money in the bank than the person who makes $100,000 a year? It's amazing how that works. And then Solomon doesn't stop there. Look what he says in verse 7. He goes, again, he's reiterating, again, I saw something Meaningless under the sun. 
He said there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. And there was no end to his toil. There was no end to his working. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I tolling? Who am I working? He asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Leave that up, Xander. It's a powerful verse. It said, here's a man who's toiling and toiling, and by toiling it means working, and he's working and he's obtaining and he has wealth, and he has also he looked around and he had no children and no wife and no spouse and no life. And he said, why, why am I trying to obtain, obtain, obtain when I have no one to share it with? I was watching this series of videos the other day, and it was talking about the new rich. And it was all these people that have moved out of suburbia and sold there. And there's nothing wrong with suburbia. I live in suburbia. We live in suburbia hell. Nothing wrong with it. But it was people who had walked away from six-figure jobs and sold their half-million-dollar homes and moved way out into the country on land and put mobile homes on it or put tiny homes on it or were even living in campers. And it said, the new rich, debt-free. <laughs> I was listening to this interview and someone said, our family thought we were crazy and we moved out here. We bought this 20 acres. They'd moved out to the Midwest somewhere and they had bought this modular home and they said, I thought we were crazy. And they said, but I, I don't go to work every day and toil to pay the house payment anymore. I don't toil to keep up with the people two houses down in their new car. And he showed, it was mind-boggling to me. They showed a picture of this man a year ago and a picture of him today. And he looked like Benjamin Button. Is it Button? Benjamin Button? The reverse growth? He looked like he had lost 10 years off his life, 10 years younger, being away from the toil and the stress of the comparison trap. He said, this is rich to me. I enjoy our lives and my kids get up and they go about their day and they do stuff and we have fun. And it was just amazing what happens when you leave the comparison trap and begin to live life in a way that you can live it. Now, again, does that mean there's anything wrong with the life that we're living? No, as long as you're not comparing it to others. Christine's dad got a new truck recently. Came home and took us, I need a new truck. She said, why do you need a new truck? I said, Rick got a new truck. She said, what does my dad getting a new truck have to do with you getting a new truck? I said, his truck's newer. She said, okay. I said, the screen in his truck is bigger than the screen in my truck. And we were just kind of joking around. There's always a lot of seriousness behind every bit of joking. I literally drive about seven miles a day in my truck. But yet I needed that bigger screen for those seven miles. I needed that seat warmer that he had for that seven miles that I drive. And for a moment, I told her, I said, I'm going to see what they'll do on my truck. I'm going to trade it in. She's like, you do whatever you want to do, but I don't understand why you need a new truck. I said, I don't need a new truck. I want a new truck. And then I did what every guy, 
And then I justify. You know how we justify? I work hard for the money I have. And if I want a new truck, I'll get it. And then I just, David, you'll like, I even tried. I said, it's 0% financing. It's like they're paying me to get a new truck. My payments will be cheaper. And then I hate having a woman who's logical. She said, yeah, payments will be about $25 a month cheaper. You're right. She said, but you owe about $29,000 on your truck, and that new truck's $60,000. She said, so actually you're gaining us about $30,000 in debt because Dad got a new truck. Suddenly I didn't need a new truck anymore. Suddenly I liked my truck. And I figure one day, I mean one day, 20, 30 years now, he's going to kick the bucket. He ain't going to leave it to Brandon. I'm the favorite, so he's going to leave it to me. I'm going to get the truck. So you just got to be patient. I said, as long as you're holding on with two hands, man, you'll never have peace. When you lift that one hand up, there's tranquility in that. I know this is hard for us to believe because we preach a lot out of the New Testament, but there's an entire Old Testament. It's got some pretty good guidelines in it, especially like the Big Ten, the Big Ten, you know, the commandments. One of them says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife. Hello. If my wife was more like, or his male or female servant, you shall not covet his ox or his donkey or his Dodge Ram. We're throwing answers out there. I saw the brand new Bronco the other day, the big full size one. You should not cover the ox or the donkey, or the bronco, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This didn't start with social media. It's been going on since the beginning of time. People not being content with what they have. (laughs) I want to give you a couple of pointers today on how we overcome the comparison trap. Because it's not something you outgrow in middle school. We're still guilty of it. The first thing we're going to do is we need to realize we give an account for ourselves. Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Guess what? I am responsible for Gary Lamb. The head of my house, I am responsible for the Lamb family. I am not responsible for the Martin family. I am not responsible for the Cope family. I am not responsible for the Westrick family. I am not responsible for the Jones family. I am not responsible for whatever family you want to say. I'm responsible for myself and you're responsible for yourself. I'm responsible for what we do with our lives. I'm responsible for what we do with our careers. I'm responsible for what we do with our children. I'm responsible for what we do with our finances. It's nobody else's business, not even extended family. It's not my mother-in-law's business what we do, my father-in-law's business. It is not my mom or my dad's business on what we do with our family. 
we give an account for ourselves. We set the vision and we set the dreams. And when you step back and you unplug and you quit comparing your lives to others and you get realistic about what your goals are in life, together as a team, then you set that trend. My wife and I are operating a business that has grown very much lately. And conventional wisdom says, man, it's probably time for us to get a store in a place of operation. Except for this. That's not what we want out of our lives. We have zero desire to be locked into a business location 50 to 60 hours a week. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what you feel led to do. I don't give an account for you. I give an account for us. When our kids have a Christmas party, we want to be able to go to the Christmas party and not have to worry about keeping the business open. If we want to take the week off, we want to take the week off and not have to worry about keeping the business open. Now, again, nothing wrong with keeping the business open, but for us and us giving account for our life, that's not what we want to do. So we made some decisions in the last week. Even talking about moving the business into our basement, because we have this basement where we can even be more flexible. And I don't know what we're going to do, and that's really none of your business what we're going to do, because we don't know what we're going to do. The point being is we give an account for ourselves. That doesn't mean I didn't go get wisdom from other people. It doesn't mean I didn't pick the brains of other people. And that ultimately, that we eat the meat and we throw away the bones. I go and seek guidance. I go and seek counseling. And we get together and we decide what's best for us. When it comes to our children... We decide what's best. When it comes to your children, you decide. Guess who your children's best parents are? You. It's that simple. We recently had a situation where we had to punish one of our children pretty severely. And people had input. Too strict to this. Guess what? You know what was so freeing? I don't care. You don't get to give input. And then the child who got punished made the fatal mistake of saying, well, so-and-so didn't get in this kind of trouble. Now you just doubled your punishment. Because I don't care what so-and-so's parents did. I'm not responsible to raise that child. I think that child personally is a spoiled, rotten little brat who's going to be pregnant by the time she's 17 years old. And Oh, did I say that? I'm sorry. But that's how I feel about it. Now, I hope I'm, I hope I'm wrong. But I don't have to. Guess what? If she ends up strung out and pregnant at 17, I'm not responsible for that child is my point. I give an account for myself and how I raise my child. I don't agree with the way you raise your child. That's okay. That's the beauty of it. When you realize you give an account for yourself in your marriage, how many of you guys, me and Christine have done this? I don't know how so-and-so is married to so-and-so. And then I say, you know what they're saying about us? I don't know how Christine is married to Gary. Guess what, though? They don't have to be married to Gary. You don't have to be married to Christine. We give an account for ourselves. 
You ever see a couple break up and they get back together and everyone's like, I don't understand. It's none of your business what they decide to do. You don't know the inner workings there. You don't know the discussions that have been had. You don't know the healing that's saying, or a couple breaks up and they don't get back together. Again, none of your business. We give an account for ourselves. It's the most freeing thing in the world. To know I'm accountable to God and us on how we run our life. When I am accountable for myself, I don't have to compare. Because we may have different goals in life. We may have different dreams. I have friends who run businesses, and I look at their businesses sometimes, and I think, if I ran that business, I'd do triple the work they do. I'd make triple the money they make, because here's how I'd run it. I don't know if that's true that I would make triple. But I miss out on a key thing. I don't know what their goals are. I don't know what they want out of that business. We just give an account for ourselves. When you answer to yourself, you don't worry about the comparison trap. Second thing, we must learn to be content with what we have. Philippians 4.11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. It's Paul, and he's in prison, by the way, here. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether we feed or hungry. Whether well fed or hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It was the great theologian Dusty Rhodes who said, I have dined with kings and queens and I've ate on the sidewalk porks and beans saying I've been at the top and I've been at the bottom and contentment in whatever you have. Can I tell you something? I have learned the power. There's anything, and there's a lot I'm bad at. Oh, let me make that clear. But I have learned the power of contentment. This is a good crowd today. In my previous church, I never had a crowd, not one Sunday that was this small. Ever. First service we ever had, we had almost 400 people and we never went below 300 ever. Matter of fact, it was normally in the thousands every week. And I was never content. I don't even know what the crowds are now here. I don't ask. Don't care. And I show up here every week content and in love with this place because I appreciate what God does here. I, 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 contentment. I love this place. It's where I'm supposed to be. I've learned to enjoy. I I love it when there's 20 people here. And I love it on Christmas Eve when it'll be standing room only. I don't live and die by the numbers because the problem with living and dying by the numbers is you live and die by the numbers. (laughs) I'm just blown away that God would choose to use me to bring forth his message to this group of people. 
And whoever shows up, well, the Bible says as long as there's two or more gathered in the name, his name, he's in the midst of Well, there's always going to be two because me and my wife would be here. So God's going to be here and we're good to go. I'm happy. Contentment. I love the house my wife and I live in. There's times that I sit around our house and I look around and I think to myself, I never thought I would have a house like this. But I'll tell you this. I was just as content when I lived two blocks from here in the ghetto of our city in a house that had floors falling in because size of my house doesn't bring me contentment. The niceness of my house doesn't bring me peace. I knew there was a purpose in that house and a plan out. And without that house, there'd be no current house. You think... When we lived in the ghetto of Canton, everybody we knew was moving into nice new homes in the neighborhood. There wasn't times that we battled with that. Sure, I'm human. But I've learned contentment. And other people's opinions of me are none of my business. I've learned contentment. I am content with where I am in life. Some of you can't be content. Do you understand that we as Americans are the richest people in the world. Even those of us that by American standards don't have anything. I mean, think about this for a minute. Parts of the country don't even have clean drinking water and we go to the store and buy our water and drink it from a bottle because we're too bougie to get it from the sink. We're rich. I saw something the day that said only 30% of the world has automobiles. 30% of the world. And most of us have more than one. And then we're so rich that we have houses for our cars. None of us can put our cars in the house because we have so much stuff that it fills up those garages. Most of our pets live better than other parts of the world live. We're rich. There's not a person in this room, and there's all walks of financial life in this room. There's not a person in this room, no one, that's wondering whether or not they're going to get food today to eat. We're blessed. But yet, we play the comparison game and we're not content. It's pitiful. We have to learn to be content with what we have. The problem with not being content is we feed ourselves trash. I find it interesting that on social media, the stuff you read is called the feed. Because we feed ourselves what everyone else is doing. My wife and I went out to a restaurant today and I was talking to a buddy. I said, we went out to so-and-so to eat. Must be nice. Fancy day for us is going to blank and he named a restaurant in town. So I like that restaurant. What? I said, yeah, man, that's a good restaurant. So what's wrong with that? 
well, it ain't so-and-so where you went. I said, who cares? You got to go out to eat. You know how many people will lay their head down tonight and not even get to eat, period? I mean, the place you went to eat so fancy, it's got a song about how fancy it is. Place we went to ain't bougie like that. I mean, you're bougie like Applebee's, man. That's fancy stuff. Be content. I've shared this story. I, I, I remember when I got divorced and I had my kids and literally had to count change out to go to Little Caesars and buy them a $5 pizza. <laughs> but I look back, I had so much, I can remember sitting in the floor Indian style with my kids while they ate pizza and I wouldn't even eat a piece until they were full. And laughing and being content and being more satisfied than sometimes when we drop a couple of hundred dollars on a meal. But I can enjoy the $200 meal because I enjoyed the $5 meal. Some of you miss out on that. Some of you need to learn to be content where you are today. Because if you're not content where you are today, you won't appreciate what you get next. You can't appreciate the victories without the losses. Got to learn to be content. It's not how I pictured my life. I, I thought I'd be in a different place at this age. You have a place to live and a car to drive and a job to go to and family who loves you. Why are you compared? But, but so-and-so, so, so-and-so, you don't know what so-and-so's dealing with. I'm in that weird situation here where I'm the pastor and so I know a lot of what goes on in people's lives. And I can't ever share that, and I would never share it. But people come to me, and they're like, I just see so-and-so in there. And I'm thinking, if you only knew what so-and-so was going through, and what so-and-so was dealing with, you're seeing what they want you to see. And you're comparing. We have to learn to be content with what we have. We need to learn to have a proper perspective on material things. You learn to be content when you have a proper perspective on material things. First Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Oh, by the way, let me clarify that verse. The love of money, not money. Money's the root of all evil. No, 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 no. Money's good. Big fan of it. The difference is money's a tool. Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money 
We need to have a proper perspective on material things. Let me make this very clear to you. I love material things. The bigger and the shinier, I love. But they're just things. If you're counting on those things to bring you happiness, you're going to find them lacking. Because eventually, the shine wears off. Eventually, something newer comes out that's more shiny. Eventually, that truck that you bought that you love so much your wife is going to drop an edger into it and scrape up the whole side of it. Hypothetically. It's not going to have the same vibe to you anymore. I love our house, but let me make this clear to you. If I lost our house tomorrow and we had to move into a camper, I say this not to be funny, we'd be just as happy in a camper as we are in our house because they're just material things. You work hard. Go get the things if you can afford the things. If you can't afford the things, don't get the things. I tell people all the time, my favorite car I've ever owned was a 2001 Eddie Bauer Ford Expedition that I bought in about 2014. Remember, it was a 2001. I paid two. Thousand dollars cash for that car. I drove that car for about three years. It had no air. Sometimes it had air. And on top of it not having air, it only had window, the windows would work when they wanted to. So time, sometimes you would just smother to death in it. So why was your favorite car, Gary? It's the only car I've ever owned that was paid for. Every month I didn't have a payment on it. It was paid for. Sold that $2,000 car for $2,500 eight years ago. Eight years ago. And I still see that joker driving around in that expedition to this day. Now he has, proper word, internationaled it up, if you will. It's got LED lights now and 22-inch wheels on it. A little red, white, and green curtain across the front of it. A little statue of Mary on the hood. But I know it's mine. You know how I know it's mine? Because it used to have an Action Church sticker in the back, and you can tell he peeled it off, and the square is still there. I'll never forget, I sold that thing on a Sunday, and the guy said, I said, you need to get a tag for this. I'm taking the tag. Oh, I'll leave the tag. I said, no, no, we're not leaving the tag. Oh, I'll be right back. I'll go to the tag off Sunday. In this parking lot, he walked up the hill and came back with the tag. So I went to the tag office. Cool. I made sure I was in the tag office on Monday <laughs> to let them know I didn't own that car anymore. Contentment. I never complained about that car. 
You know why I never complained about that car? Because the car I had before that was a Jeep Cherokee that I had when I got divorced. And it was really nice when I got divorced and over the years of doing roofing and doing all kinds of stuff and it fell apart. So I had to, it was an automatic that I had to manually shift. It wouldn't start in first gear. You had to start in second gear and then shift up and shift up, shift up. It wouldn't go in reverse. So you had to be very careful how you parked. You would turn it off and it would run for about another five minutes. Yeah, I'd go into the convenience store, come out, still be running. Sometimes you'd take the key out of it and the car would literally would still be running. You didn't have to have a key to run. So the expedition was a step up. I just learned to be content. Have a proper perspective on material things. They're just material things. You know at the end of the day what the goal of the car is? Get me from point A to point B. I used to have a scooter, 49cc scooter. Say, Gary, you rode a scooter around town? Everywhere. There was nothing cool about that scooter. I bought that scooter for $125. I still remember what, because that was back when gas was expensive. Well, compare it wasn't expensive. At that time, it was $2.99 a gallon. You know what that scooter did? 100 miles to the gallon. It only hold one gallon. And it drive 100. I used to drive. Now, I was a little embarrassed. I wore a full face mask where no one knew it was me. But I drove that scooter everywhere. Just a material thing. The goal was to get from point A to point B. That scooter was so awesome, someone stole it. Came out from work one day and it was gone. Stole my scooter. Proper. Perspective on material things. There's material things. Someone has been asking prayer requests from me. They said, Man, I need a place to live. I lost my place to live. I need lost my place to live. I lost my place to live. They were coming and I said, Man, you got a place. He said, Man, I got a place to live. I could tell you this. I said, Where? And for a brief minute, he's like, uh, and, he, and I said, Man, beats being homeless, don't it? He smiled. He said, Yeah, it sure does. Proper perspective on material things. Once you learn that material things are just material things, you don't got to compare anymore. It's so funny to watch people flaunt their stuff. That's the difference between rich people and wealthy people. Rich people flaunt their stuff. Rich people might become rich four or five times a life because they're going to lose it all. You'll never know that wealthy people have money. They don't have to flaunt it. They have wealth, material things. We learn to become content when you simply look at things as things. And last of all, and I don't even have a Bible verse for this one. It's just, I just threw it in here because I think it's just a good one, and we're going to go home. We want to learn to be content. Learn to be happy for others who are blessed. We could actually go back to that Ten Commandment thing where it says not to covet everybody's stuff, and I could throw that one in there. I love watching people I know succeed. I love watching people by the world standard succeed more than I succeed. I'm their biggest cheerleader. Yet some of you get so angry about it and so mad about it. I'll never forget when I got rid of that expedition. 
We bought a Jeep. We had a different crowd at the church then. And the rumbling, I must be nice. Look at his new Jeep. He got a Jeep. They didn't complain when I had a $2,000 expedition. Suddenly I had a, a Jeep, like that's some elusive thing. Well, I got accused of stealing money from the church. Let me make something clear to you. There ain't no money in this church. What's there to steal? How many of you, because it's, it's only a few of you, Susie, Doug, how many of you ever counted the offering around here? Been part of that process? Is there any money to steal, Robin? No. No. Doug, the other day, had to ask me, he said, oh, we need some lights in the back. We got $100 in the bank. I said, I think we're good. I think we're good. You can get some lights. The kids ain't got to be in the darkness. Let's get mad, though. We explain people's stuff like, well, it must be nice. I bet they inherited that. Someone must have died. Where did they get that? Who cares? Who cares? Get excited when other people are blessed. My brother-in-law's starting a business. I'm so excited for him. I get mad that I didn't think of the business. I, I, I hope he kills it. I'm not mad at him for that. I love seeing my friends succeed. You'll always live by the comparison trap, though, if you're jealous of what others success. But again, success is a weird word. It's a weird word. Because your definition of success and my definition of success are two different things. One of my best friends could not be any different than I am. His definition of success is completely different than my definition of success. He doesn't care anything about new cars, new homes. He doesn't care anything about vacations. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. His definition of success is built on um, his two boys, and he wants to do experiences with them, and whether it's raising chickens or growing bland or whatever. I I don't know what he does. And that's success to him. I have a different version of success. So you've got to know what your version of success is. A lot of people's version of success is not having to go to a nine-to-five job. Cool. A lot of people's is moving up that court. Whatever your definition of success, be blessed when others have success. Quit comparing. God uniquely shaped you and created you to put you where you are. Be content with it. Be happy with it. And here's what you'll find out. The more content you become with it, the more God will bless you. Let's pray.